We've been looking for the world to change. No more hunger, no more war, sings John Legend. We here at Solutions of Balance, along with our guest today, Kentucky State Legislature Attica Scott, are also looking for the world to change. Folks, you're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. We are delighted you could join us today as we talk with our guest, Louisville native, Kentucky State Legislature, Attica Scott. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your host for Solutions of Balance, a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. Views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Kentucky State Legislature Attica Scott. Attica Scott graduated from Knoxville College with a bachelor's degree in political science and earned a graduate degree from the University of Tennessee in communications. She worked as a community organizer on issues of racial equality and criminal justice. She was elected to the Louisville Metro Council 2014. Annika Scott was elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives in 2020. She represents Kentucky's House District 41. Annika Scott is a member of the House Elections Committee, the Constitutional Amendment and Intergovernmental Affairs Committee, the Judiciary Committee, the Education Committee, the Natural Resources and Energy Committee. Kentucky State Legislator Attica Scott, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation, and I look forward to our conversation. Okay. Representative Scott, you represent District 41 in the Kentucky House of Representatives. That district covers Beechwood Village, Bellwood, Brownsboro Village, Mockingbird Valley, St. Matthews, and Woodlawn Park in Louisville. That's a fairly diverse group of, of districts. There are going to be a variety of sometimes conflicting interests in, in many of those districts. They are metropolitan in Louisville. Louisville is no exception. So how do you advocate for needs and, and interests of people living in West and East districts of Louisville? How do you go about advocating for interests that could be different realities for citizens? Thank you so much for that question. I have had the absolute honor of representing almost a quarter of Louisville at some point in time, whether it was on Louisville Metro Council, where the district extended all the way southwest to the West End, and now as a state representative where the district stretches all the way to uh, Westport Road to almost Chickasaw Park. And it's an amazingly diverse district. And what I believe in first and foremost is that I am called to serve. Um, I was recruited to serve. And so I am answering that that call to service by making sure I'm speaking to the needs of our constituents and across the districts, the needs remain the same in so many ways. People want affordable, safe housing and, and when it's needed, supportive housing. People want good paying quality jobs, jobs that pay a living wage. People want to have access to quality healthcare services in their neighborhoods so they don't have to leave where they live in order to be healthy. These are all basic needs that are universal across the district. And so I center that and put that first and foremost. And then of course, there are other issues that are specific to particular neighborhoods, specific to particular areas. Great. Before you became a state legislator, you were a community organizer in Louisville. You were yes. heavily involved in the Justice for Brianna movement. 
The Justice for Bugatti movement is about the rights of African Americans. The differences and needs of your district as 41 can be very different. Some of them are expressed in economic and racial terms. In, in demonstrations that advocate for the rights of African Americans, how do you how do you represent the, the concerns of all the people in District 41? That's a good question as well, because what I have found in this past year, and even before 2020, is that people, no matter where they live in Louisville, whether it's a Middletown or J-Town, whether it's Old Louisville, which I represent part of Old Louisville, or Butchertown, and I represent part of Butchertown, wherever people are, they want their neighbors to be healthy and safe. And that includes healthy and safe from police violence. And while 2020 helped to amplify that issue for a lot of people who may not truly have understood why many of us were speaking up about police violence and demanding police accountability, we have seen every single part of Louisville show up for racial justice in this past year. We have seen every single part of Louisville demand better and demand more from our elected officials and the people that we pay to protect and serve us. And so I am uh, deeply honored and blessed to be someone who was born and raised in Louisville and to see that wherever I go in this city, people have said, yes, we demand justice. Yes, we stand with you and, and all of our community. And so that to me is a testament of the way that we are building relationships across divisions. And it's a testament to how more and more white people in particular are understanding what it truly means to show up for racial justice. Because when you show up for racial justice, you're showing up for justice, period. Okay, so Annika Scott, state legislature, the Brianna for Justice demonstrations that occurred in Louisville have lasted over a year. These demonstrations enjoyed your participation. With a few exceptions, the Brianna for Justice protest has been mostly peaceful. A current journal article entitled, quote, Cameron, probe held by FBI ballistics, end quote, published August 7, 2020, and penned by Morgan Watkins, agrees that the demonstrations have been mostly peaceful. So we here at Solutions to Violence uh, believe protests should remain peaceful. What's your position on demonstrations and how they should be structured? I'm a strong advocate of people's right to protest. And people protest in many different ways. And when we have folks who are anti-protest, anti-people standing up for their constitutional rights to have their voices heard, anything could be considered not peaceful. I mean, you could sit at a lunch counter and refuse to move and have people say that that was not peaceful. You could bend your knee, be on your knee in front of police and people will say that that is not peaceful. So the reality is protest is protest. And I choose not to say that a, a protest was, was peaceful or not because what happens is people put their judgment on a protest. Is If it doesn't fit with their ideal of what protest is, and oftentimes, you know, far too many people, especially people in, in positions of political power, want protests to be silent, want you to protest in your head, protest to yourself, but not out loud. Don't be loud about it. Don't be boisterous about it. And so uh, the protests throughout 2020 and now into 2021 have been in many different forms. They've been car caravans. They've been people marching. They've been people staging die-ins. They've been people turning their backs on physically, literally turning their backs on elected officials when, when they are speaking rhetoric 
that is not about justice. And so I have, and my daughter has been part of protests since May of 2020 when we were tear gassed by police for no good reason as we were showing up for justice and and including when we were arrested in September for no good reason because we were showing up for justice. And so what I often push back with people on is that when they talk about so-called peaceful protests, they need to also talk about violent policing. They need to also talk about police arresting people unjustly. They need to also talk about militarized police and police using weapons of chemical warfare like tear gas on us, which can harm a person's ability to bear children. So people need to also have those conversations and those discussions and say, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to change that? Okay, fair enough. So the Justice for Brianna demonstrations that have occurred in Louisville are in part about restructuring the Louisville Metro Police Department in order to diminish police brutality and racial profiling against African-Americans. Governor Bashir signed a partial no-knock warrant bill. Under that law, the no-doc warrant must be executed between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m., and police officers are required to take additional steps to obtain warrants. Judges are also required to sign legability when approving them, and emergency medical technicians must be nearby during execution of the warrant. So did you support that bill? What would you do to make this bill a, a stronger bill? It took a lot for me to support that particular bill because the people's bill, the bill that literally thousands of Kentuckians supported, including the folks who've been on the front lines at Injustice Square Park in downtown Louisville, the bill that they supported was House Bill 21, which was a full ban on no-knock warrants, which included alcohol and drug testing of police officers who are involved in these these murders, these deadly incidences. And that bill was giving a hearing, but it was not voted on. And instead, the weaker measure, the Senate bill, is the bill that was passed. I voted on it uh, because we were able to make it less worse and, and less weak than it initially was because we were able to get an amendment on there. But I, I begrudgingly voted for that bill because I, I knew that we had to do something, but I also know that we deserve better. We deserve true justice. That bill is not true justice. It is not a full ban on no-knock warrants. And that's why right now in Lexington, Kentucky, that city council and the community folks in Lexington are now advocating for a local ordinance that would fully ban no-knock warrants because the state failed to do so. Uh, Attica, the Louisville Metro Police Civilian Review Board was recently established. Louisville Metro Council President David James has, well as the Louisville Metro Council uh, with the member Jessica Green and others have hoped that the Kentucky State Legislature will grant that review board subpoena power. With subpoena power, the board will have authority to, to require police officers to testify in a civil case. The Kentucky State Legislature passed a bill giving limited subpoena power to the Louisville Metro Police uh, Civilian Review Board. The review board will will have to receive permission from the Louisville Metro Council before it can uh, issue a subpoena. How does this 
require uh, rendered the LMPD citizens review, review boards uh, effective or ineffective. Mm -hmm. Got it. Understood. So what happens in Frankfurt far too often is that um, those of us who are seeking true justice are thrown crumbs from the table of the predominantly white men dominated legislative body. And the subpoena power issue is yet another example of that that occurred particularly during this legislative session, but has occurred since I've been in office and when I was a grassroots lobbyist in Frankfurt. And so this bill is a reflection of that. It's a reflection of th crumbs thrown at the table. Uh, we are not going to, to grant your, your full demands, but we're going to do just enough so we can be part of this performative politics, act like we're doing something when in the end we're truly making justice more difficult to achieve. And so if the legislature and any local or federal elected body truly listen to the people most impacted by these issues, they would listen to Black people. They would listen to Latinx folks. They would listen to Asian folks. They would listen to Indigenous folks. And they would follow our leadership rather than stealing our ideas, stealing our pieces of legislation, and, you know, and, and weakening them, making them less than what they initially were designed to be. And so, Representative Nima Kulkarni, the first ever Indian immigrant elected to the state legislature, was working on legislation related to granting full subpoena power to the Civilian Review Board, and then her efforts were put on hold. She was told to wait, as, as we as women, and in particular women of color, are often told to do wait, just wait, but the men have got it. And unfortunately, the men didn't have it. They uh, worked on, advocated for a much weaker version than what she was going to file. And that's what we have before us. So what that means is the Louisville Metro Council, which I once served on, will find itself back before the legislature in January 2022 when the legislature reconvenes, asking yet again for full subpoena power to be granted directly to and through the Civilian Review Board. Okay. So, Annika, the justice for Brianna demonstrations were also about economic justice for African-Americans. HB 321 is a bill that will match private investor money with state money. It's designed to help startup businesses owned by African-Americans in Louisville's West End. It will provide incremental revenue tax incentives to the West End Opportunity Partnership and an income tax credit for certain residents. So HB 321 by, has been signed by Governor Pursuer. It was originally sponsored by Morgan McGarvey, Lisa Wilner. Others claim some of the private investors are from out of state and they stand to profit from the income tax credit. But you believe many working class African-Americans in Louisville will benefit from the incentives provided by the West End Opportunity Partnership Income Tax Credit, the TIF bill. I voted against it for a number of reasons. One of the nine neighborhoods in West Louisville, uh, half of those neighborhood association leaders opposed the TIF for the West End, in part because an entity like the Omni Hotel got more than $100 million in tax breaks and incentives from the city of Louisville. And yet we as Black people are supposed to think that $30 million across nine neighborhoods is something that we could actually build on and, and have a real strong, tangible difference in in West Louisville when, when single entities like the Yum Center get $100 million plus TIF deals, and then we get $30 million, so there was opposition there. There is huge concern about would freezing property taxes impact school funding. That's a serious concern that we have. So if you're going to freeze property taxes for the next 30 years in the West End of Louisville, what will that do to funding for our schools? schools 
in the West End of Louisville. So those are real concerns. People have real concerns about gentrification and the West End because we know that the West End has the lowest home ownership rate of any part of the city of Louisville. And, you know, I know from my own experience that there are more people who rent in the West End of Louisville than who own homes. So who is this really benefiting? I also have to say that this TIF deal did not have any protections for renters. So, you know, if you're a renter, then you still can be unjustly kicked out of your your home and you could end up houseless. So there are lots of issues and concerns that came with this TIF deal. Um, There were questions about why can't we continue to have more community conversations and educate folks and get people's feedback and actually listen to Black people and incorporate their feedback. Um, Why did this have to be rushed? so that it, again, is performative politics to make it seem like you care about racial justice and economic justice. There were a number of questions that I had, in particular, as someone who comes from an activist and organizer background through Jobs with Justice, about whether or not these TIF funds would be able to be used for financing worker-owned cooperatives. That is not in this bill. Will there be a mandate that jobs that are created are good living wage paying jobs? That was not addressed in this bill. Uh, The businesses that are developed out of this may very well be shells for large corporations and companies that don't have the best intentions for the West End of Louisville. So, so no, I actually have a lot of concerns about this deal. So the issue that's currently before the Kentucky State Legislature is the redrawing of district boundaries, political districts. The redrawing of boundaries occurs every 10 years. And that redrawing of district boundaries are supposed to be based on U.S. census and population data. But it doesn't have that way. Fran Wagner, president of the Kentucky League of Women Voters, explains in a current journal op-ed April 3rd, 2021, titled, quote, to end gerrymandering, GOP and Dems should cooperate, end quote. She explains that sophisticated computer models have enabled legislators to slice and dice voters even more precisely into districts that allow them to choose their voters rather than voters choosing the elected officials, end quote. So it is it no secret that political boundaries have been redrawn to meet the needs of politicians that are in power rather than the needs of citizens. The process is called gerrymandering and the procedure is occurring as we speak. The Kentucky League of Women Voters advocate for an advisory commission made up of citizens that would make recommendations to legislatures as to how district boundaries should be drawn. Do you support an advisory commission established for that purpose of guiding the process of redrawing district boundaries? Is there anything citizens can do at this late date to pressure legislature to establish an advisory commission or a fair process for redrawing district boundaries? Well, I'll say a couple of things on that question because you've asked me something that about something that has been important to me for, of course, um, a couple of decades now, and that is both the census and then redistricting. And so it's important for people to remember that the way that we get to this point of redistricting is that folks needed to have participated in the census in 2020 and completed their census. Again, Rep. Kulkarni and I advocated at the state level for a full and accurate counting of everyone in Kentucky because our Republican colleagues wanted to limit the counting of people who were immigrants and in 
particular uh, people who may not have had their documentation for their citizenship status. They did not want to count them here in Kentucky, which is absolutely unacceptable. Why in the world would you want to set up a county to not receive all of the funding that it needs to take care of all of its neighbors, regardless of their citizenship status. And so we we tried, we advocated for that to the best of our abilities. And so now we have in front of us the results of the 2020 census. And um, with those results, we are now looking at redistricting, which is, you know, includes reapportioning both local, state, and federal legislative lines, whether it's your school board, judicial seats, city council, your state representative, state senator, member of Congress, et cetera. So all of that is what's being focused on right now. And so when I was on, so to answer your question, yes, I support and have always supported an, an external committee that would provide its recommendations for redistricting. When I, before I served on Louisville Metro Council and I was a grassroots advocate through Kentucky Jobs with Justice, we created such a body at the local level to support, to work with Louisville Metro Council to have an accurate and fair redistricting process. And that included uh, labor unions were part of that committee that we created. The Network Center for Community Change was part of that committee, Kentucky for the Commonwealth, and a number of fairness campaign, another a number of other organizations. And we presented a proposal to Louisville Metro Council and they did take many of our ideas into account. The results of redistricting look like the districts that I have served. So when I served on Louisville Metro Council and the district went from the West End where I live to the far South End, that was a result of redistricting. The district that I represent now, I live in the West End of Louisville and the district is a salamander shaped district that goes all of the way out to almost Westport Road in the East End. That's a result of redistricting. That's tangible. That's something that people can actually see in order to understand what we're talking about right now. American Civil Liberties Union denounces what they call voter suppression legislation in Michigan, Texas, Georgia, and Arkansas, the League of Women Voters of Georgia, along with uh, Georgia NAACP, Georgia Coalition of People's Agenda, Georgia Latino Community Development Fund, Common Cause, and the Lower Muskegee Creek Tribe. ACLU was filed, uh, has filed a, a lawsuit against the state of Georgia to prevent enforcement of SB 202, an omnibus voter suppression bill signed by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Recently, the Democrats in the Texas state legislature walked out of the chamber in order to prevent the Republicans from passing what the Democrats called voter suppression laws. The Texas Democrats temporarily blocked the passage of the Republican voter laws. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp threatens to call a special session of uh, Republicans to, uh, for a second chance to pass laws that make it more difficult for voters to cast their ballot. Can you give us an example on how these laws will suppress voters as, as well as those who are targeted? You know, and I, I do believe that there are a number of examples of how these bills are voter suppression bills. In January, my dear friend Shmika Parrish Wright and our daughters and I went to Georgia to canvas for Warnock and Ossoff. And we had a number of deep conversations with people in Atlanta about their concerns with what's going to happen in retaliation to the increase in voter turnout, particularly among um, Black and Asian and Latinx voters in Georgia. 
And that's exactly what these bills are. These bills are retaliation against this increase in voter participation. And so what that looks like is uh, something that might seem simple to folks on the outside looking in, but it's actually really serious, is not being able to provide water, water to people standing in line in the heat uh, when they're voting for in the primaries, not being able to provide water to people. And so, of course, folks have already started working uh, around that and, and being very creative and, and thinking about how to make sure that people stay hydrated because that's a health issue. So, you know, we, we're seeing that. We're seeing these voter ID measures, which Kentucky passed a voter ID bill, which is ridiculous to, to say that someone now has to have their ID with them to vote. So yes, there are examples of the impact of these measures on people who are trying to participate in the foundation of our democracy. And that attempt is being suppressed by people who are uh, terrified of what true democracy means. And it means representation. It means that people have the chance to, to truly be able to elect folks that are going to stand up for equity and fairness and justice. The federal government could pass a law that would reduce the effects of the voter suppression laws passed by the state legislatures. The Voting Rights Act, known commonly as the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, has been passed by the U.S. House of Representatives, but is stalled in the U.S. Senate because of the Republican opposition. Tell us about the importance of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Yes. Uh, and what I will say is that this country has the opportunity to support this bill to make sure that we protect the right to vote and expand voting. And we all know that Congressman Lewis literally put his life on the front lines for justice. And this is part of his legacy, his legacy to protect all of us across this country. And so, yes, this is time, it is beyond time for this act to be passed. And it's disappointing to see that some uh, so called Democrats are in opposition to this bill. Yeah. So let's talk about a bill that reflects the passion of Banneka Scott. You authored two bills that would require the Kentucky Department of Education to include the history of African Americans and Native Americans and the history of racism in the Kentucky Core Content Social Studies curriculum. A local national organization, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, supports your efforts. First, explain why learning the history of African Americans and Native Americans is important to both black and white middle and high school students. Certainly, and I, I will start by saying it was high school students who initially brought this idea to me. In fact, a young woman, Taylor Little, almost a decade ago, had been leading this effort in Jefferson County and had even gone to Frankfurt uh, to try to get support for this initiative. And then she went on and graduated from high school, went to college. And then uh, about three years ago, students at more traditional high school here in Jefferson County picked up this idea and approached me with it and asked if I would be willing to sponsor this bill. And I said, yes, of course, because it's important for all of our students to learn the history of people who've been most left out and left behind in this country, to learn about the people whose land we stand on right now, the indigenous people of this country whose land was stolen from them, to learn about the black folks in this country who helped to build this country, but were never acknowledged for that, who were enslaved 
um, who were beaten, brutalized as they did the work of building this country. That's important to learn because if we don't know our history, we're bound and determined to repeat it and it will be detrimental to all of our futures. Okay, so Jamie and I are both Jefferson County Public School social studies teachers, former teachers. And as such, I reviewed the, the entire Kentucky social studies core curriculum content. I can tell you there is not much African-American history or Native American history in that curriculum. Why was that history left out? Again, here we go, repeating history. We see today what's happening with even here in Kentucky, legislators filing bills not to teach the history of racism and sexism in schools. It's so that, one, those of us who were most negatively impacted by the history of this country, all of us were negatively impacted, to be honest, but those of us who were brutalized by it, whose land was stolen, whose native language, language was stolen, whose hair was cut, who were enslaved, um, when we know our history, we build our collective power and we rise up to demand more, to demand justice, to demand transformation. And there are elements in this country who don't want that, who are pushing back against it. And so that's why today we find ourselves with these extremely radical right-wing Republicans who are filing legislation not to teach the history of racism and sexism uh, in our public schools. And the result of that, what happens when that, when it feels like that pass, is that we are going to find ourselves repeating this cycle of oppression over and over again, the cycle of marginalization over and over again. And we are not going to build a better community across this country for all of us. Okay, so you mentioned the fact that there have been bills filed. So Kentucky Republican Joe Fisher is now sponsoring an addendum to Kentucky state law that requires religious organizations the right to function in public and parochial schools during non-instructional time. But the Fisher Amendment, if passed, will determine how race and gender can be taught in public and parochial schools. Kentucky State Senator Gerald Neal's June 12th Facebook Live program, Straight Talk, features the Jefferson County Public School Superintendent, Dr. Marty Polio. Senator Neal and Superintendent Polio both agree that the Fisher Amendment is designed to diminish or prevent the teaching of African-American history to middle and high school students. They explained that it is designed to tell teachers what they can and cannot teach. The addendum comes with heavy consequences for those who violate the amendment. Districts and schools could suffer $5,000 per day fines, and teachers could lose their certification. If Kentucky Attorney General, currently Daniel Cameron, determines the amendment has been violated, the Kentucky Social Studies School Content Curriculum is a guide. If the Fisher Amendment passes in 2022, the legislative session, it will become law. In a current journal article entitled, quote, Educators Juggling Politics, Pedagogy, and penned by Olivia Krauth, dated June 20th, 2021, Kelly Beckett, the executive director of the Kentucky Council for Social Studies, said this, the group will continue to back teachers as the gatekeeper for what and how historical content is taught in the classroom, end quote. So, Attica Scott, give us your thoughts on the Fisher Amendment and tell us why you oppose this bill. Definitely. And there are actually two uh, very similar bill, uh, bill requests, Bill Request 60 and Bill Request 69. And, and these bills reek of racism and sexism. And they contradict the so-called Commission on Race that the General Assembly just passed this legislative session to study Black people some more. It also contradicts 
the legislators bill that it passed my first year in, in Frankfurt related to biblical literacy. They, I don't even think they are reading these bills. I think they're just taking them from ALEC and filing them. Because if you are a legislator and you were actually reading this bill, then you would stop and say, wait a minute, we just passed a bill to teach Bible literacy. Now we're, we're filing a bill to not provide the instruction of religious beliefs. So it's a contradiction. And so, of course, we cannot expect this supermajority legislature to want its own grandchildren to learn about how institutions and systems benefit white men because and white women, because then they would have to reckon with their historical and current complicity in systems of oppression. So instead, both BR60 and BR69, instead of those two bill requests, the legislature should truly focus on dismantling racism across the Commonwealth of Kentucky, dismantling sexism across the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and respecting and valuing all of our neighbors. These bill requests don't do any of that. Okay, so let's change directions here. In 2020, some 43,557 U.S. citizens died as a result of gun violence. Some 19,401 of those were homicides, and 24,156 were suicides, results of gun violence. There were 610 mass shootings, as documented by, quote, Gun Violence Archives 2021, end quote. In March 2016, the American Journal of Medicine published an article entitled, quote, Violent Death Rates, the U.S. Compared with Other High-Income OECD Countries. 2010, penned by Erin Greston and David Hemingway, demonstrates that, quote, when compared to 23 other high-income countries in 2010, the U.S. homicide rate was seven times higher than other high-income countries, driven by a gun homicide rate that was 25.2 times higher, end quote. A Gun Violence Archives 2014-2021 Kentucky Stats article demonstrates that already in Kentucky, there have been more than 2,046 gun-related deaths, 3,659 injuries, 37 mass shootings, and two mass murders. The data demonstrates that each year, the number of people killed or injured by gun violence increases, as does the number of U.S. citizens who own guns. An article entitled, quote, poll, number of Americans who favor stricter gun laws continues to grow, end quote, published by the National Public Radio and penned by Rachel uh, Treisman, October 20th, 2019, illustrates that by September 2019, 60% of the American population wanted stricter gun control laws. So yet, gun safety laws that could eliminate background checks establish red flag laws that restrict the purchase of military-style weapons, sits on the desk of Senator Mitch McConnell. McConnell will not allow the U.S. Senate to even consider gun safety regulations. So do you support stricter gun regulations? What kind of gun regulations received your advocacy, and what chance do those gun safety regulations have of passing the Kentucky State Legislature? Yes, I definitely support stricter common sense gun control legislation. I remember standing up on the House floor in 2018 after the Marshall County High School shooting, Marshall County High School in Benton, Kentucky, after that shooting where, where two students were left dead and 17 were injured. And, you know, I talked about the shooter opening fire on students and faculty, and the legislator's response was to pause for a moment of silence, to pause for a moment of silence. 
And I stood on the house floor and said that we have to do more than pause for a moment of silence. And I remember several of my colleagues telling me it was too soon. It was too soon. Parents were burying their children. Wait until after those children were buried. We're always told it's too soon. It's not now. Wait, it's too soon. And I refused. And so I I stood on that floor and said what I needed to say, which is that you can't tell Louisville to walk around the block and pray about gun violence and and then say that in Marshall County, we can't believe that that happened in a small, close-knit community as if we're not close-knit in in Louisville. Um, And so we can do better. I truly believe we can do better and provide more than a moment of silence. We can allow consolidated local governments like Jefferson County to enact local legislation related to certain issues on firearms and ammunition governance. We can do that. Give these communities, give these cities, give these counties local control. These cities could be models for the entire Commonwealth of Kentucky. And yet the bill, that bill didn't even receive a hearing in 2018, despite students hiding beneath stairs um, while they were listening to the screams of their teachers. And so our response instead has been to train our babies, train our children on how to react when faced with an active shooter. But we are not taking action on gun safety. We're not doing anything around truly, you know, locking up guns separate from ammunition and making sure there are child safety locks when you lock up your gun. We're instead, you know, what we do in, in Louisville is we hold gun shows on MLK Day. On Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, there are gun shows in Jefferson County in Louisville. And Martin Luther King was assassinated. He was murdered with a gun. And yet and we're having gun shows on his day. And people are pretty much silent about that. We can stop promoting those kinds of gun shows until we have the kind of gun control legislative change that we need. Uh, Stop marketing, stop supporting, stop amplifying, stop selling billboards um, to these gun shows. We can make sure that instead of doing what Kentucky did, I think it was my, my second legislative session, instead of passing legislation that says you can open carry without a permit, instead of saying we want Kentucky to be the wild, wild west and allow people to open carry without a permit, we can make you have to have a permit in all instances, in all circumstances. But we don't do that. We didn't learn from the January 1993 mass shooting at East Carter High School in Grayson, Kentucky. We, again, sent thoughts and prayers. We didn't do anything when the Heath High School shooting in Paducah happened in 1997. We sent thoughts and prayers. It's as if we don't care about anyone, including our children. So yes, I believe that we can take action on common sense gun safety legislation. Okay. Attica, talk with us about Kentucky State budget. Uh, What are the spending priorities? Who wins? Who loses? What changes do you think would uh, help working class neighborhoods? Certainly. I, I don't think since I've been in Frankfurt that I've voted on uh, uh, to, to support a budget yet, whether it was 2018 or last year, 2020 or this year for our extended one year budget. I have not voted for a budget because every time it fails to take care of all of our neighbors across Kentucky, every time it fails to make sure that that we are providing full funding to our public schools. Yes, we provide a lot of money to our public school systems, but it's not full funding. Our public schools have not been fully funded since 2008. In fact, 
We've slowly taken away, taken away funding from teacher professional development, from instructional materials, including textbooks. We've done that since 2008, so for the past 13 years. So I'm not going to vote for that budget. I'm not going to vote for a budget that uh, strips funding away from our public libraries. Our public libraries are places where people who are houseless go so that they can find some of the supportive services that they need. They're places where our, our children, our students go to study and to have access to computers because where I live in the West End of Louisville, you know, we have whole households that don't have internet access. And so I, I can't uh, vote for a budget that takes away those needs. Instead, our budget focuses on making sure that we're taking care of the wealthiest in Kentucky. The budgets uh, focus on uh, making sure that the judicial branch has all of the funding it needs, but the people who go through the judicial system don't have all of their needs met. So, so no, I'm not going to vote for or support budgets at any point in time that aren't taking care of our public needs, including our health departments. If the budgets aren't doing that, then I'm not going to vote for them. Uh, Atticott, uh, you mentioned one thing about the justice, uh, the needs of the, the people going through the justice system. Would you expand on that a little bit? Certainly. And, and those needs are the needs that many of our neighbors across Kentucky face, myself included. Housing. Housing. People need access to affordable, safe, quality, sustainable, supportive housing. People need jobs where they live. They shouldn't have to get on TARC here in Louisville for an hour to get to work. We need jobs where we live, in our neighborhoods where we live, and those jobs have to pay living wages. People need that in order to survive so that they don't have to feel like that in their most desperate moments, they have to go to the grocery store and steal food and then get arrested because they stole something to eat for themselves or their families. We need to be taking care of the needs of people. We need a much more robust public transportation system. I know that people push back on conversations about light rail and find every reason or excuse not to want to support light rail. But my goodness, let's at least support our public transportation system as it exists. So these are some of the needs that people who are going through the judicial system are facing, emotional and mental health support. Uh, we, we are failing miserably at making sure that people have the emotional and mental health support that they need. We are failing miserably at making sure that people have access to primary care and dentists and uh, gynecologists in places like the West End of Louisville. These are all needs that need to be addressed in our budget, making sure that something like and, and that need to be addressed for people who are going through the judicial system, full translation services. We have more than 89 languages that are spoken in Jefferson County, making sure that all of our institutions and systems have interpretation and translation services available. These are all things that people who are going through the judicial system are facing and those needs are not being met. Okay. Uh, Attica, you're you're currently one of two African American women and uh, members in the K Kentucky House of Representatives. The other is Pam Stevenson. She represents the 43rd district. Do you think you receive the recognition and respect that you you, you should deserve? What are the problems with being one of only two minority members of uh, Kentucky State House? Well, I demand it. I, I demand respect and to be treated with dignity because I provide that to everyone that I interact with and that I work with. And when that doesn't happen, I call it out and, and I check people on it. And I'm not concerned about your hurt feelings if you've disrespected me. And so there have been a number of times 
since I've been in Frankfurt, where I've had to go to our leadership in the House Democratic Caucus and say as white people, because that, that when I was first elected, it was all white people who were, it was all white men, in fact, who were in leadership of our House Democratic Caucus. There are times where I've had to go to them and say, as white people, you need to talk to the white people who are in leadership in the Republican Caucus about these issues, whether it was being seated behind the person from Bullitt County who campaigned using images of uh, President and Mrs. Obama as apes. And I refuse to sit behind someone who thinks that I'm an animal or people who are black like me are animals, whether it was being removed from the education committee, which went against our policies. I was supposed to have the right to serve on the education committee as an incumbent, and I was removed from that committee. So I had to go to our leadership to say, this is your responsibility to address this issue and get me back on this committee. There have always been these issues that I've had to address, and, and our Legislative Black Caucus has had to address as well, and our Women's Caucus issues uh, related to members of the House standing on the House floor and speaking in committee, comparing abortion to the Holocaust, comparing abortion to the Holocaust and lynching. We had to address that. We would we refused to stand for that. You are not going to make that comparison. We were not going to stand for it. So those are the kinds of issues that every single session I know I've had to address as for years, I was the only black woman in, in the legislature and the first one elected in two decades. And even now, you know, as, as being one of two and, and one of three women of color with representative Kukarni as an Indian immigrant, we are often addressing these issues and we demand, we, when we walk into a room, we demand our respect and to be treated with dignity. If you, if you can't do that, then you don't have anything to say to me. I'm here to do the work of my the folks who elected me to serve. And quite honestly, there are people across Kentucky who have said to me, you're the state representative I wish I had. So I'm here to do the work for them as well. I'm not here for your, your bias, your bigotry, your racism, your prejudice, your sexism. What can your uh, constituents do to help you? Oh my goodness. District 41 constituents are amazing. They are super supportive in every single way. They support the legislation that I have filed. In fact, today I posted up that I have pre-filed a bill to remove the tax from menstrual hygiene products. This will be the fourth year that I have done that. District 41 has been extremely supportive of that bill. They call me to let me know what bills they support and which ones they oppose. They email me with the same because that's always helpful for me when I'm speaking out about legislation. They are so understanding of the way in which Frankfurt works that for almost five years, no member of the Legislative Black Caucus ever had a bill heard in committee until this year. And whenever I would go to a business association meeting, neighborhood association meeting, whatever it might be in District 41, people would often say to me, we know that you're not able to get any of your bills heard in Frankfurt because of the racism and sexism in that legislative body. And we appreciate the fact that you keep trying. We appreciate the fact that you stand up and you speak out about issues. That makes a difference. And I will also say for folks who may not be in District 41, that you can be supportive by making sure that your state representative is signing on to, as co-sponsors to the bills that I'm filing, making sure that they're signing on to the bill that I just pre-filed around removing the tax for menstrual hygiene products. Because we have way too many people across Kentucky who are living from paycheck to paycheck or no check to no check. And menstrual products are a health need. They are a health necessity. They're not optional. So take that tax off of that, those products so people can afford them. So there are lots of ways that people can be supportive, calling, emailing, uh, posting on social media, showing up for racial justice, 
um, there is always something that people can do. Okay, so let's, let's follow up on that respect issue, Annika Scott. You were the first African-American female elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives, as you pointed out, in 20 years since Eleanor Jordan left the House in 2000. So Maester Kidd and Georgia Davis Powers being the first African-American females elected to the Kentucky House in 1968. Currently, there are significant numbers of eligible African-American females. Shamika Parrish-Wright, Katrina Herring, Cassidy Herring, Sandiqua Reynolds, Jessica Green, Beverly Chester Burton, Elite Fields, Wanda Lynch, just to name a few. Why hasn't there been more African-American women elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives in the last 20 years? And I will say, and I have to say that there are so many names that we don't know who are, would be much better than any of us that you named serving in office. We, we don't know their names, but they are all across Kentucky. Uh, they are in Western Kentucky. I was in Mayfield, Kentucky on Saturday for their Juneteenth program. They're in Bullitt County. I was part of Bullitt County's Juneteenth event on Saturday. They're uh, in Estill County. They're in Powell County. They're all across Kentucky, and they may be names we we just don't know. I mean, so I want to lift them up, and I want to say to uh, anyone who is a, a Black woman or an, uh, a woman of color, run for office. You have every right to do so. Run for office, and you're probably going to have to do so outside of political party structure because sometimes the party structure is a barrier. Sometimes the the party uh, is a barrier to us running for office that we don't get the support, or we're told that our campaigns are not viable, so-called viable, and I'm putting viable in quotes, that is often code for that person's probably Black, that person's probably Latinx, that person's probably a person of color, so automatically we're not viable. If you support us, of course we'll win. If you support us, but if you automatically assume that a white man is better suited to be in the position or a white woman is better suited to be in a position or someone who's wealthy is better suited to be in a position, then we'll never have a chance unless we kick through those doors and bust through them the way that I know I did by running a truly grassroots community-based campaign. Um, and that's what we, we tend to do all across this commonwealth. And we have our own systems and structures that are set up against us. Yeah, okay. So, uh, Annika, you delivered a speech uh, to the Palestinian-Israeli demonstration recently that concerned the current conflict that exists between Palestine and Israel, even though your speech was about resolving the conflict in a peaceful manner. Some accused you of being anti-Semitic. What do you say to those critics? Well, interestingly enough, I've uh, not had anyone say that to me directly. Um, and, and people just throw that out. Uh, at this point, I feel like people are accusing, in particular, Black women who are speaking out of being anti-Semitic because we are calling for justice. Not because we've actually done or said anything that's anti-Semitic, but, but because we're calling for justice for, for Palestine. So it, there's automatically these derogatory terms that are thrown at us. And we've always had them always, even from people we stand with. And as for me, as someone who served as coordinator of the National Conference for Christians and Jews, uh, which became the National Conference for Community and Justice, I want you come to me and say that to me. Contact me directly and say that to me so we can have an honest conversation because you know it's not true. Anyone who is saying that knows that it's not true, but they're trying to create division where there should be no division. So what I did was, yes, I stood with our Palestinian siblings. Yes, of course I did in discussing Israeli occupation. Of course, I talked about being a Black woman who has, who me and my child have experienced 
police violence, violent policing, militarized policing. Of course, I talked about that and the fact that Palestinians were fighting for liberation, just as we have been fighting for Black lives. Those issues are interconnected. Of course, I talked about opposing money going to fund militarized policing. I talk about that all the time at home and abroad. Of course, I talked about violent systems of oppression and trauma that are maintained by the state because I'm anti-war and I'm anti-occupation. I'm anti-apartheid, period, period. So how can I as a Black woman not speak up because I've experienced police violence? I refuse to be silent. And I want my Jewish siblings to stand with us, to stand with us as Black people, show up for racial justice, be on the front lines with us, call out violent policing, call out funding going to militarized policing right here at home and abroad. Let's stand together rather than trying to create division where it doesn't exist. Okay. Attica, we are out of time. I want to give you uh, your one last question. <laughs> By unofficial sources, you have higher political ambitions. You once contemplated run for governor. What's the future for Attica? I'm listening to the people who are often giving me direction. I was recruited to run for Metro Council. I was recruited to run for a state rep. In fact, Representative Mary Lou Marzian, for a year, Uh, kept asking me to run for state house against a Democratic incumbent. And I did that um, with the support of my community, with the support of my family and friends. And as people are asking me to run for higher office, I'm listening to them. And I'm also taking into account the fact that I have to work full time. I was a single mom of two children. And now I'm, uh, of course, in a position where I'm uh, still a single head of household. So I have to work full time. So I take that into account. It's one of the reasons I didn't run for governor. I couldn't afford it. Isn't that something? When you ask the question about why there aren't more Black women and other women of color in office, sometimes we can't even afford to run because we can't leave our jobs like other people are sometimes able to do, people who are much more wealthy. So I'm going to continue to listen to the people and follow their guidance and direction. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We are again out of time. We do thank Kentucky State Legislator Attica Scott for being with us today to seek solutions to violence. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Today's program will be repeated June 22nd and 23rd. Our Solutions to Violence program featuring Attica Scott will be placed in our archives June 23rd. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org. Scroll down to Program Archives and then scroll down to Solutions to Violence. Kentucky State Legislator Attica Scott's program will be listed in that archives. Would you like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Attica Scott? You can reach us with the following email, solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. Thank you again, Attica. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you. I'm Jamie McMillan, my co-host Jim Johnson. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please promote peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thank you for listening.